If you would, please join me in taking out your Bibles and turning to the Gospel according to Mark. We've been in Mark's Gospel now almost for 30 weeks, and we'll probably have 30 more weeks to go in order to finish this Gospel account of the life and ministry of Jesus. As we go to God's Word, let's go to the author and ask His blessing. Almighty God, we are a weak and weary people, and we long to one day see the face of our Savior. Until then, Father, help us to continue to walk by faith and not by sight, and we thank you, Father, for your word, which indeed is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. So, Father, may you be pleased to give your people understanding, to give your people a growing desire to put your word into practice. Oh, Father, would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit and the presence of your Holy Spirit, meet your people as we look to your word, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, yes, we are at week 29, Jesus according to to the Bible and exposition of the Gospel of Mark. Well, some of you may be familiar with the play Hamlet, written by William Shakespeare, the English playwright, sometime around 1600. It's his longest play, and many would argue that it's his most well-known. Well, the opening words of Act 3, Scene 1, begin the most famous speech in English literature. What are those words? To be or not to be? That is the question. Kids, have you heard of that before? To be or not to be? That is the question. Well, what do we mean? What did Shakespeare mean when he put those words into this play? Well, most interpretations understand that as Hamlet is... This is Hamlet posing the question of whether it is better to live or to die. Is it morally legitimate in particular to take one's own life? In other words, to live or to not live? That is the question. Well, assuming that is the correct interpretation, what we have in our text today is another question of great importance, of far greater importance as it concerns also a matter of life and death. Here we are in Mark chapter 8. Mark is orderly, deliberate, and purposeful in the structure and organization of his book. Although it's roughly chronological, Mark arranges his material primarily for theological purposes. And just earlier this week, I was reading an article that showed up in the Um, February 2009 issue of Table Talk magazine entitled The Gospel of the Gospels and the author writes this about the Gospels that they are theological interpretations of the life of Jesus Christ with the purpose of proclaiming the coming of the King of Israel and the inauguration of his kingdom over all the earth and we've seen that as Jesus the King comes and announces the arrival of the kingdom, and with that is the call to repent and to believe in the gospel. Mark, as you've been hearing, is divided into two halves. The first half, the focus is on Jesus 
the Christ. Who is Jesus? The focus is on the person of Jesus. And as we will see beginning next week, the second half focuses on Jesus, the Son of God. What did Jesus come to do? It's a focus on the work of Jesus. And here in chapter 8, in these verses that we will consider this morning, is the hinge, the pivot point, the intersection, the turning point of Mark's Gospel. Mark has created thus far a climate of tension. Think with me back to chapter 4, verse 41, when Jesus calms the storm at sea. And what is their response? Who is this? Who is this? They're asking. And our last verse that we considered last week, Jesus said to them, Do you not yet understand? There's tension. There's tension thus far in Mark's Gospel. Mark is placed at the center of his narrative the recognition that Jesus is the Christ. And yet between chapter 1, verse 1, and chapter 8, verse 29, there is really no recognition of this fact despite all that we've seen taking place. But yet with Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ, we have arrived at the central turning point of the Gospel according to Mark. Join with me now as I read Mark chapter 8, verses 22 to 30. And they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees, walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. In our text this morning, there is a series of three matters we need to explore. First, a matter of sight. Then, a matter of popular opinion. And finally, a matter of personal confession. First, let's take a look at this matter of sight from verses 22 through 26. Here we have another miracle which continue to reveal who Jesus is and demonstrate His power and His greatness. We're probably on the northeast shore of the Sea of Galilee in the villages of Bethsaida. Notice, similar to Jesus' healing of the deaf man earlier, at the end of chapter 7, Jesus communicates in a language this man can understand. Those of you that are familiar with... Um, 
folks learning to read who are blind understand the Braille language, a series of um, dots um, on, on a piece of paper or some surface where you can read through touch. And here's Jesus touching a blind man. He's establishing, once again, a personal, intimate relationship. To be sure, miracles are fabulous demonstrations of great power, whether it's the stilling of the storm and the winds and raising the dead to life. Absolute power. But notice the absolute intimacy of Jesus' miracles, the touch, the, the personal care, sensitivity that Jesus demonstrates. You know, just right then and there, we can see Jesus being powerful and yet gentle. That's our Savior. That's our Lord. Jesus asked this man a question. You know, last week we had a whole lot of questions, and here you'll see a series of three questions. And this first question is, do you see anything? It's along the lines of him asking the deaf man, uh, as it were, can you hear me now? Do you see anything? And the man gives an answer. I see men, but they look like trees walking. The man had probably not been born blind. He has an idea. He has a memory of what sight was. But now he's able to see, though not yet perfectly. Before we go on, notice his answer was honest. He told the truth. And my friends, if there is anything that can help us grow as a congregation to love one another, to serve one another, it's to tell the truth. Somebody says, how are you doing? Are you really ready to say my life is falling apart? Tell the truth. This man is honest with Jesus. He, he can see, but he sees men and they look like trees walking. He's honest. He tells the truth. And we see, of course, a two-stage miracle here. Jesus touches the man's eyes again and his sight was restored and now he sees everything clearly. Why two stages? Great question. Mark doesn't tell us. Mark, who's writing this narrative account, does not think that he needs to spoon-feed us the answer here. So Mark wants us to stop, to think, to wrestle. Why two stages? I mean, believe it or not, some commentators, of course, of the unbelieving kind, would say, well, Jesus was having trouble. He, he didn't get it right the first time. He had to come back. Of course, that's coming from a, a, a non-believing perspective. Of course, the Lord knew what he was doing. Mark is not going to tell us directly, though. We've got to wrestle with the context of the whole book. But we do know this from Isaiah 35 that we've read recently. The coming of the Messiah would be a time when the deaf hear, the mute speak, the blind see. It's the promised action of God. But what were the disciples around Jesus, walking with Him, what were they supposed to learn about this miracle? What were they supposed to learn as it related to their relationship with Jesus. Notice when Mark places this account. After 
the blindness of both the Pharisees and the disciples. The spiritual blindness of both the religious leaders and the men Jesus is calling to follow Him. One thing that we can say as we go through Mark is it will take a miracle that the disciples will be able to recognize Jesus as the Christ. Because indeed, only as Jesus keeps opening your eyes and my eyes will we see Him clearly. Just as this man needed his physical vision healed and sharpened, so also do we spiritually need our blindness to be healed, but to continue to be sharpened. Remember, miracles are pictures of redemption. To be sure, people are healed. Uh, people are fed. The winds and the waves do cease. But they're helping us understand. When we see the paralyzed walk, the hungry fed, demons cast out, deaf hearing, mute speaking. Look back at chapter 8, verse 18. Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? Go back to Isaiah 35. What is happening when the Messiah shows up? The deaf will be able to hear and the blind will be able to see. So I believe that this incident here, Mark is putting it here, it's providing a picture of what we've been seeing take place between his between Jesus and His disciples in general, and now what we will see between Jesus and His disciples in particular. So it's a matter of sight. It's a matter of the restoration of sight, but it's also a matter of popular opinion that we see in the next two verses. The scene shifts. They're on the way to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, 25 miles or so north of Bethsaida. It's the northern edge of Israel. It's, it's actually outside the province of Galilee. It's 125 miles away from Jerusalem. It's countryside on the lower slopes of Mount Hermon, near the source of the Jordan River. It's green and cool, and people have said it's the most beautiful part of Palestine. But the area is dominated by Rome, and the city itself was built in honor of who? Caesar. It's a region devoted to the affirmation that Caesar is Lord. So I want you to see in your geographical mind's eye that on the far edge of Israel, 125 miles north of Jerusalem, where Jesus will turn and be headed to, on the outskirts, skirts, as it were, of the promised land. In an area where just the very city's name proclaimed, Caesar is Lord. That is the location where the confession is going to be made. Jesus asked a question, who do people say that I am? In other words, what do people think of me? Mark, thus far, we've seen people amazed, astonished, threatened, confused by Jesus. 
the disciples are quick to give an answer. What do they say? John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. And their reply is similar to what we read in chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, in terms of who, um, at the time of John the Baptist and the interaction with Herod. In other words, opinions really haven't changed since the early days. All three opinions, whether Jesus is John the Baptist come back to life, whether he's Elijah come back, that promised return of Elijah that we read, as it were, in Malachi, but all or a prophet, but all of these assign Jesus as a preparatory role and deny to him the definitive role associated with the consummation and achievement of salvation that Jesus is bringing. Now, if Jesus is just a preparatory figure, then you know what? Procrastination is still a valid strategy of how to deal with Jesus. If Jesus is, as the Jews would think, as even Muslims would think, oh, he's a prophet. If he's only preparing for the one to come, then procrastination makes perfect sense. However, if Jesus is not the preparatory one, but he himself is the one to whom all the others have looked and pointed, and of course, scriptures make, Scripture makes that very clear, then how someone responds to Jesus is of life and death significance. Notice that everyone has an opinion on who Jesus is. Then, as well as now, he is not ignorable. And I've tried to, to, to set the stage for why it's important to, to understand Jesus according to the Bible because everybody's got a Jesus of their own imagination. But it's Scripture that points and portrays an accurate picture of who Jesus is. Jesus according to the Bible. You can't ignore Jesus. You can suppress Him. You can exchange the truth for a lie. But Jesus Himself divides the calendar. We know. He cannot be ignored. Everybody's got opinion. An opinion about Jesus. Now although the disciples answered well, Jesus is not satisfied. He knows that it is not enough for His disciples to know what other people think about Him. You know, it's an easy answer Jesus asked a simple question, what do people, who do people say that I am? And anybody can answer that question. Because the first answer doesn't require anything of the disciples, except they can just repeat back what they've heard. But with a mere change of pronoun, Jesus is going to ask a second question. And this second question requires something of the disciples. And they will soon come to realize it will require everything. Let's see what happens when Jesus goes personal. Because now we move from a matter of popular and public opinion to a matter of personal conviction, personal confession. Jesus asked this second question. But who do you say that I am? Children, 
Don't ever think that a small word is an unimportant word. Here you have but and you. But is going to contrast. On the other hand, you've heard this, but now that and you. Not others, but you, and it's emphatic. But who do you say that I am? In their association with Jesus these years and months, what have they learned? Jesus is saying, you know the opinion of others, but what is your conviction? Will the disciples stand out from the crowd? Will they distinguish themselves from others? The questions of Jesus. Before we get to the answer, let's think about these two questions that Jesus just asked. What do they tell us about Jesus? Have you noticed that Jesus' questions and indeed His teaching is surprisingly self-centered? It's staggeringly self-conscious. Other religious leaders talk mainly about behavior and salvation, but his primary and central teaching is about himself, his identity, and his greatness. I want you to imagine if a professor would say, for the last three years in your class that you were taking, that the most important thing I have been trying to teach you is this, do you really know who I am? Anybody want to be with a professor like that? Unbelievable, crazy, arrogant in the extreme. In other words, class, I want you to know the most important thing you've been learning these three years you've been with me is it's about me. These questions show that the basic burden of all of Jesus' instructions boils down to this. It was about his identity. And this cannot but force us into extreme positions about Jesus. Such behavior on the part of Jesus is only appropriate if He really is who He says He is. If He's divine. If He's just a man, such self-interest is totally inappropriate. I mean, look at the political landscape that we are in. It's all about me. It's all about me. Jesus is saying it's all about me. But Jesus cannot be what many people think He is, a good teacher. Either He's divine or He's someone who should be rejected. As the quote from C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, the one that's included in the bulletin this week. Well, the disciples, Peter in particular speaking for all the disciples, give an answer. Jesus asked a question. Here's the answer. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah, God's appointed Savior of His people whose advent has been foretold. Here you have Christ being a derivation of the Greek or Messiah of the Hebrew. This is recorded and also in Matthew and Luke, but Mark's is the most direct, the most simple. You are the Christ. Appointed and anointed by God to a particular task 
with a particular power as we see the anointing of kings and prophets in the Old Testament. Because Jesus is indeed making itself known. He is the promised prophet, priest, and king to which all others were pointing. Now kids, how did, how did the disciples do on the test Jesus gave them? He asked a question. They gave an answer. Jesus doesn't say anything. He doesn't say you're correct or incorrect, but by not saying anything, he is agreeing with their conclusion. Again, think back to this previous miracle. With his confession, Peter has sight. He sees Jesus as the Messiah, but it's only partial sight because it's an expression of both faith and misunderstanding as we will see. His words are correct, but the conception of who a Messiah, who the Christ would be, will need to be corrected. Because we will see beginning next week, Jesus will go on to define what it means for Him to be the Messiah. And yet, interestingly, we read a warning. Jesus gives a warning after this confession. What does Jesus say? Verse 30, And He strictly charged them, to tell no one about him. Well, why? Why would Jesus ask the question and then say, don't tell anyone? Because Jesus was not interested in stirring up a political crisis. He did not want, his, he did not want people to um, interpret this identification and integrate it into the first century political concept of what a Messiah, what a coming Jewish leader would mean to the Jewish people. Because Rome also would not have tolerated an open proclamation of the Messiah by so popular and influential a leader. It would not be accepted by Rome in any form, and as we will see next week, the disciples themselves cannot accept it. Secondly, Peter didn't have any idea he didn't have a clue about what it meant for Jesus to be the Christ. Even the disciples themselves did not realize the real nature and work of the Messiah, what it would be. And third, people must find out for themselves about Jesus. Yes, we point people to Jesus, but as you see, Scripture tells us, God has to open their eyes to see Him. God has to open their ears so Jesus gives a warning because at that time they were in no condition to proclaim Jesus as Christ because as we will see, they were still only able to see as men looked, as they saw men who looked like trees walking. Post-resurrection and after the coming of the Holy Spirit, these same men would be transformed men. Well, let's conclude by revisiting the question, taking another look at the picture, and reminding ourselves of the promise. The question of Jesus. The question as to the identity of Jesus is the central theme of the entire Gospel of Mark, and it confronts every reader of the Gospel. Who is Jesus? Luke 24, that we remind ourselves often, in Luke 24, post-resurrection, Jesus says, you know what, the Scriptures are all about Me. 
with that very thought, you cannot ignore Jesus. Did you notice the title of last week's sermon and this week's sermon? Kids, last week, what was it? The questions of Jesus. What is it this week? The question of Jesus. Singular. There is one central question of life. And it does not have to do with what people think about Jesus. What do people think about Jesus is not the question. The question rather is, what do you believe about who Jesus is? To be or not to be is not the question. The question is the one that Jesus asked and that everyone must answer one way or another. Who do you say that I am? It's not only the pivot point of this gospel account, my friends, as you know, it is the pivot point of life. The question of Jesus. Let's look at the picture of the progressive nature of the healing of spiritual blindness. Notice with the blind man, it was not instantaneous, but gradual. And in the healing of the blind man... There are really two pictures. One is Jesus' approach to us. He takes us by the hand and He gently leads us. He asks us the question as we are on the way with Him. Jesus' approach to us. But there's also, I believe, a picture of our approach to Jesus. You know, the blind man did not resist his family or friends bringing him to Jesus and begging Jesus to heal him. He acknowledged his condition, his blindness. He exhibits a humility. To be sure, it had to be, he had to swallow his pride to receive help from this man that he had heard about and others helped. But notice he requested, as it were, he didn't resist being healed. He's got humility, but he's also got boldness and again for the disciples the second touch continues and comes in full only after Easter only after the resurrection so there's the question of Jesus the picture of the progressive nature of spiritual healing and then finally the promise the promise of God what Jesus begins he completes. Scripture is right. He is the author and finisher, the author and perfecter of our faith. Many of you may be familiar and many of you may camp out on this passage in Philippians chapter 1. Paul writes, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's guaranteed what Jesus began, He will finish. And I know some of you right now, if you're honest, you're struggling and you're saying, I believe I've begun this journey with Jesus, but I'm not so sure I'm going to make it. My friends, rest and rely on the promise of God and the One who makes the promise. 
Because right now we all see partially. One day we will have complete and perfect sight. Indeed, at the end of the well-known chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, about love, Paul writes this, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. The Christian life, if I can sum it up like this, based on our passage, is steadfastly believing the promise and patiently waiting to see God's fulfillment. The disciples continue to walk with Jesus. And He will show them what it means to be the Messiah, the Savior, the suffering servant. Because beginning next week, it will be a journey to the cross outside of Jerusalem. We're not going to sing this to end today, but I want you to hear these words from hymn 75, stanza number four, O Father, You are sovereign. O Father, You are sovereign, we see You dimly now, but soon before Your triumph, earth's every knee shall bow. With this glad hope before us, our faith springs up anew. Our Sovereign Lord and Savior, we trust and worship You. Church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have this hope, this glad hope before us. Rejoice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You. We thank You that You are in the business of healing us. You are in the business of opening our blind eyes, unstopping our deaf ears, opening our closed minds, removing our dead heart and giving us a heart that's alive, that beats to the truth of the gospel. Father, may we rejoice in your incredible patience with us in the healing process and father may we demonstrate great patience with one another as we point one another to Jesus who indeed is the author and the perfecter of our faith oh father enable us with sincerity from the heart to answer the question that is before us. Who do you say that I am? Father, may we rejoice that you have opened our eyes to see the answer. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen.